First uh, John, starting um, in chapter 3, and that is page 1022, if you're using a pew Bible. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that what, when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. But this we all know, that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. This is the third week that we have been in, in the book of First John. We're looking at chapter 3 today. Let me remind you of a couple of things we've talked about the last couple of weeks. John says in this letter that he writes to the church, he says he has three purposes in writing. In chapter 1 he says he's writing so that our joy might be complete. In chapter 2 he says that he's writing so that we might not sin. 
And then in chapter 5, he says he's writing so that we might know that we have eternal life. John's three things, his three reasons for writing this letter are joy and holiness and assurance. Those are his desires for us. Those are his desires for the church, that we might have joy, that we might have holiness in our life, and that we might have assurance of our salvation. John writes this, again, the backdrop for this, and if you want to hear this more fully, you can certainly go and listen to the other messages that, that have already come. But the backdrop for this is the early forms of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is, is an idea of, of enlightened thinking, that there was these, these groups of people who began to change what the gospel looked like for the early church. And one of the, one of the ways that they did that, one of the main ways that they did that was the Gnostics began to teach that, that there was a separation between the physical body and the spiritual part of who we are. That the spiritual part of who we are was, was good and could be good and could be changed and converted, but the physical part of who we are could not be. The physical part of what we, of what we are and our body was evil and our spirit was good. And in fact, they took that so far to say that, that there was no possible way that Jesus, the Son of God, there was no way that the Son of God could come and inhabit this physical body. And last week I said, one of the reasons I think that that, that began to, to happen is because, is because we know, we know our body. We know the sins of our flesh. We know all of the things that we're prone to do and the desires that we have. And so these men began to just think, there's no way that God, the holy God, could come and live in this body. And so they began to concoct, really change, the truth of, of to who Jesus was. Some of them said Jesus actually wasn't ever a human in human form. It was just the, the teachings of Jesus in the three years that he spent leading the disciples and, and teaching throughout Israel. He was just a, 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 an apparition. He was just a ghost. He did come from heaven and, and God sent his son, but he never became human. He was never born as a baby. He never lived an early life. He just showed up, looked like a man, taught like a man. Everyone thought he was a man, but he was a ghost. The other, the other concoction, um, was the idea that, that Jesus, there was a man named Jesus who was born as a baby to Joseph and Mary in a natural way. And he was a pretty good guy. He lived a pretty good life. He was as, as righteous and holy as a human can be. And so God chose that man, Jesus, and at Jesus' baptism by the, by John the Baptist in the Jordan, when the dove descends from heaven and God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. At that moment, God actually enters into the man of Jesus and then leaves right before the man of Jesus dies on the cross. That God descends, lives in, in this man for a little while, and then leaves. Again, that's, that's the background for this book. That's the Gnostic teaching that John is refuting as he goes through these chapters and as he writes this letter uh, to, the, to the early church. He's saying that, that I was there. That's his response early on in the book of John. He says, I was there. I have heard him. I have seen him. I have studied him with my own eyes. I have heard what he has had to say. I've touched him. John, John was the disciple who was, who was reclining and leaning against Jesus at one of the, the dinners. He says, I was there. I know he was a man. And I know he's the son of God. Both of those things are totally 100% absolutely true. He was man and he is God. And so John begins to, to refute those Gnostic teachings. And then he continues on. 
He continues on with, with how we might be sure, how we might be sure that Jesus is the Son of God and how we might be sure that Jesus is in fact our Savior. And last week in chapter two, we talked about the three tests that John gives us to help us to know if we are saved, if we're really believers, if this is really true for us. He gives us three tests. He gives us the moral test of righteousness, that the moral test that says if we keep his commandments, that we are in fact believers. We please We seek to please the one that we love. And if we love God, we try to keep his commands. He gives us the social test of love. The test that says, there's a new commandment that I give to you. One that, that if you are, if you love me, you will love your brother. That's what Jesus says on his, on his last night. And John says that this is the test. If you love one another, you in fact are a believer. And then John gives the third test, the doctrinal test of truth. He says, our attitude and our acceptance of truth, particularly about Jesus being 100% man and 100% God, if we believe that, if we accept that, that shows our conversion. Those are the three tests that John talks about last week in chapter 2. Now, we're coming to this each week, every seven days. We come to, on a Sunday morning and we dive into the next chapter. Um, that's not how John wrote it. He didn't take a seven-day a seven day break and then write the next portion. This is one long letter, and all of these things are associated from the very beginning to the very end. And so sometimes it's hard for us to, to incorporate all that together and, and, and let it flow from, from chapter 1 into chapter 2 into chapter 3. When John wrote the letter, there, was, there wasn't chapters. It was just one long narrative. John, as I, as I said that early day, or early in that first day, was that this is at the end of his life. He's probably, he's probably 70, 80, 90 years old, somewhere in here. It's the very, it's the very end of his life and he's writing this letter. He's trying to get these things out to the church and, and, and his style is different than Paul. When Paul writes his letters to the church, he's very logical. He, he, he starts with one line and he says, um, this is true. And then if that is true, this is true. And if that is true, this is true. And if that is true, this is true. And he, and he spells it out for us. And if you're a logical thinker, you like the way that Paul writes. John doesn't write that way. When John writes, especially now in, in, in this part of his life, he, he's an older man and he, he begins to tell a story. And he begins to just drill that story down. And he gets down a little ways and he, and he stops and says, oh, I, I want to go back and I want to, I want to, it reminds me of something else I want to tell you. And then he, he begins to tell that and he begins to, to drill that down and it looks very much like the first place where he drilled down. They're, they're, they're very similar. They, they talk about the same things. And, and then he'll stop. And he'll give a, a parenthetical um, idea or something that doesn't even relate to what he was just drilling down about. But, it, but that reminded him of, of another story. That, that's what we looked at last week in chapter 2. The, the idea of Jesus Christ being our advocate and God being the judge and Jesus being a propitiation. There's just a, a parenthetical window, a picture that John paints that, that comes kind of in the middle of two places where he's trying to drill home a point. That's where we start, in fact, right here in chapter 3. He has another kind of a parenthetical picture that he wants us to see. When he says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know, that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. There's a picture here that John begins to paint. You know, he just said here at the end of chapter 2 as he's writing, he says, he says we should have confidence. 
rather than shame at the idea of Jesus coming back. That there should be confidence in us. We should have assurance, belief that we do know the Son of God, that He is the propitiation for our sins. We shouldn't have shame. And as that, as he writes that, I think it, it sparks the, the idea for John about this great love that God has for us. And he gets excited about it and he says, he says, there's this great love and we are children. We are children of God. We are heirs with Christ, he writes through there. And then he says, not only are we children with God, but there's going to come a moment, there's going to come a moment where we will be like him. We will be changed. We will be like him in the end. And then John says, as he's picturing that and he's thinking about God is going to come back, Jesus is going to come back, we are going to be changed, we're going to be like him, he, we are his children, and he's going to come back for his people. John's p- picturing that. And then, as he begins to picture that, I think this is what he begins to think. We're waiting, the disciples, the early church especially, are, are, are waiting for Jesus to come back. In fact, Jesus' last instructions were, I, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and get you. And John knows that the early church is waiting for that moment. And a lot of us, even today, in today's church, are still waiting for that moment. And we view the second coming of Christ as like this escape hatch for us. This escape valve for us. That, that all we gotta do is, we just gotta survive. We just gotta keep on getting through. We gotta power on through because, because one day, Jesus is gonna come back and everything will be fine when that happens. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna wait it out. We're just gonna, we're just gonna hope for that. And so I think John, John knows that that's the attitude of the early church. He knows that that's probably going to be our attitude. And the truth is it is lots of times. And so John, his response right here at the beginning of chapter three is he says, we know that he's right. He says, says, beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. And then he says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then this is what he says in verse three. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John, John does not say, just, just wait for that day, just long for that day and everything will be fine. John says, if, if this is true and Jesus is preparing a place for us and he's going to come back and get us, what we need to do is not just hope for that day. But what we need to do is purify ourselves. We need to be, we need to be doing all that we can to make sure that our lives are right and that we're, we're, uh, we're following his commands and we're loving one another. That we're understanding and declaring the truth. That we're working on who, we're not just waiting it out. When Jesus is going to come back, we're purifying ourselves and we're preparing ourselves so that when Jesus comes back, and we have to give an account for who we are and what we're doing. We're purifying ourselves. And then after that little vignette, that little parenthetical picture, John goes on to write, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this, it is evident that we who are children of God and who are, chil- and who are children of the devil, whoever does, does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This picture, John begins, he's, remember he, he drilled down, in chapter 2 he drilled down, he said there's three tests. There's the, do you obey my commands? There's the, do you love your brother? And do you listen to truth and, and understand and, and believe truth? And now he kind of comes up. And now he's going to drill down in those same three thoughts again, those same kind of three tests again. And he does it in, in an idea of a contrast. He wants to give us the picture. Remember John, as I said in that first day, John is, John is black and white. You are either in God or you're out. It's either dark or light. It's either death or life. There's no middle ground for John. He's always one or the other. There's one side that's right. There's one side that's wrong. And so John begins to show us that contrast right here in, in 1 John chapter 3. He begins to give us the contrast between, between righteousness and sin. Between righteousness and sin. And he does it twice, actually, in these verses. In, in verses 4 and in verse 8, in those two verses, um, he talks about the origin of sin. About where it came from. He says sin, sin is lawlessness. He says in verse 4, and then in verse 8 he says, and sin comes from the devil. It's lawlessness, and it comes from the devil. This is lawless, sin is lawlessness is a pretty, is, is a pretty, um, good definition of sin, and yet it, it seems pretty broad. There's a lot of room in that definition for sin. And, and we don't necessarily like broad definitions of sin. We want to have a pretty narrow, we want to have a pretty specific definition of sin. We want to be able to see it. We want a list because if we have a list, we can check it off and we can know, yep, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And we can check it off and we can know we're okay. We want to have a narrow definition of sin. And John doesn't give us a narrow definition of sin. John says sin is lawlessness. Sometimes... The easy definition or the definition that we, that, that we hear early on for what sin is is not this definition of sin is lawlessness, but instead we hear the definition that, that sin is breaking a known law of God. Maybe you've heard that before. Sin is breaking a known law of God. If you know it and then you break it, that's a sin. What John is saying is not, it, it's from the very beginning, he says. The devil was sinning from the very beginning, long before there was a law. We have, we have books of the Bible that come before the law comes, and those people, there was no law. God had not given Moses those Ten Commandments. There was no law yet, and yet there was sin. There was tons of it. Sin was from the very beginning. And it's not just if you break the known law of God, if you've seen it on the definition, you've seen it on the chart, and you haven't obeyed that. Sin is much, much bigger than that. There's a story of a, of a boy who's in Sunday school and his teacher is asking him, what is the definition of sin? And the boy says, I think it's just about anything that I want to do. That's the truth of sin. That's the truth of sin. Just about anything that I want to do. Sin is not just breaking the known law of God, but sin Sin is all around us. And the Gnostics, one of the things that the Gnostics were trying to do was they, they wanted to separate soul and, and body. Because 
as I've said already, they, they knew what their body was like. They, they knew all the things that they, that their body was inclined to do and how they were prone to wander. And so the best idea that they could come up with, the best way that they could do it was, was let's separate our body and our soul. As long as our soul is right and our, and our spirit is right and, and what's inside of us is okay, this physical part, this body can do whatever it wants because it's, it's prone to do that anyway. Our flesh is prone to sin, and so we're just going to let it do whatever it wants and sin away. But that sin doesn't count because it's just our body. It's not our soul. The Gnostics were trying to, to separate that out. As long as they could be spiritually pure, they felt like they would be accepted. That's what we like. We like, we like to try to diagnose sin and to knock it down to where we can control it and we can understand it. We like narrow definitions. We do not like broad definitions. We don't like definitions where anything that we do that is not for the glory of God is actually sin. That's that's way too broad for us. We don't like that idea. The truth is, though, that the definition of sin is much larger than anything that we can imagine. The definition of sin is so much broader than what we can imagine. I... I have a, a I know a, a guy a friend who has made the statement I've I've heard him make it to say for the last this is this was his statement for the last two years I have not sinned and another friend of mine has said I've heard him say that comment I I I've heard him say those things and yet I watch him with his wife and I know that there's sin. In his life, and and this first gentleman that makes that statement, he 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 has this narrow view. I, I I know the law of God. I know the rules that God has set forth for me, and as as long as I can check off that list, I'm I'm good. I haven't sinned. Scripture doesn't give us that picture. In fact, Isaiah fifty three. If you know that book, it says, "All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way." And then it says that God has laid our iniquities on him, on the Son, on Jesus. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's the way it is. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. And John, earlier in chapter 1, he says, if, if you think that you don't have sin, you're deceiving yourself. And the truth isn't in you. He says, we've all sinned. All of us have. And not just have we done it in the past, but all of us all of us live in a state where sin keeps knocking at our door and it keeps bubbling up inside of us. John then gives the picture. He says, sin started at the beginning. It was lawlessness. It came from the devil. And then he gives a picture of the work of Christ. He does that in verses 5 and again in in the second part of verse 8. He says in verse 5, he says, you know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away the sins, and in him there is no sin. Also in verse 8, he says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. That is about as simple definition as you can get for why did God send his Son? To destroy the works of the devil. Sin had entered into the world. The devil had tempted Adam and Eve, and in their, their moment of weakness, they, they sin and centered in, enters into the world. And from that point on, every human being has this desire inside of them, this, this want to inside of them to sin. 
No one has to train us on how to do it. No one has to teach us how to do it. From the earliest moment, babies, they want their own way. And no one trains them to do it. No one says, all right, I, I, I want you to want your own way. I want you to, to, to turn to your own way. We don't do that. The works of the devil are passed on from generation to generation to generation. Inside of us, we have a carnal nature that causes us to want our own way and to oppose who God is. So John says, it started with the devil. It's lawlessness. But Jesus came. Jesus came so that we might have hope. And then he goes on and gives this third picture in this, in this passage and says in verses 6 and then again in verse 9, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then in verse 9 it says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. I'll be honest, those are the verses I wanted to skip today. I wanted to just fly over those and pretend they're not there. Because the question that we have to have, I, I, I hope you have the question, I have it. I've just talked about how broad the definition of sin is. Anytime I want my own way, that's sin. Anytime that I, that I do something that, that falls short of the glory of God, it's a sin. The definition of sin is huge. And I'll be honest, I sin way more than I want to. And so, if that's the case, what happens here? He who abides, he who abides in him and keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or no, that's pretty scary for me. I hope it is for you. So you have to say, what does John mean here? Does he mean that when I become a believer and when I put my hope in Jesus and he becomes my advocate and is a propitiation for my sin, does that mean that from that point on, I never sin? Like my friend said? Or is it that every day there are moments in my life where I do not live for the glory of God? What is it? Let's look. This is what, this is, John, if you can flip around in, in 1 John, he says, he says several different things. He tells us several times that Christians will not sin. We, we just read it in, in chapter 3, verses 6 and 9. He said, it, he said it earlier in 1 John chapter 2, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we, know, if we keep his commandments. Keeping the commandments is one of the means for our assurance. In chapter 3, verse 6, he said, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known him. And we read it in, in chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And same thing in, in John chapter, first John chapter five verse 18 says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. In first John chapter four verse eight it says, the one who does not love does not know God for God is love. So there's all these different passages where it says, Christians don't sin. And if you believe in Jesus as your savior, sin is over. And then he says this, if you're looking in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This passage is for believers in chapter 1. Chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you might not sin. 
anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If anyone does sin, he has an advocate, John says. Chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We're already his children, it tells us. In 1 John chapter 5, it says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give he will ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There's a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. So these verses, these verses give us the picture that believers, children, brothers have sin that needs to be repented for, that needs to be confessed, that needs to have the righteousness of Christ poured out on it. So what's the answer? Do Christians sin or do they not sin? The answer, that John gives us, is yes, Christians sin. But the, but the verb that he uses in here, in, in the Greek, we don't, we don't have the Greek, we can't read the, I can't even read the Greek, but the verb tense, that he uses here in chapter nine or in verse nine says that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The idea is that there is not a habitual, a consistent, a usual, ongoing practice of sin. And if you right now are reviewing in your mind your life, sins that you struggle with, and you can think of something that you that you habitually, continually, consistently deal with. There are times that you fight it, but there are times that you love it. I would say, whoa. I think that's what John's talking about. There's going to be times in our life where we sin. There's going to be times in our life where we fall short of the perfect holy standard of God. We have done it and we will do it. But when we begin to practice it continually, consistently, over and over and over, and we move, we move from hating sin to tolerating it, to liking it, to loving it, to cherishing it, I think John would say, you're, you're not there. You have not moved from dark to light. You have not moved from death to life. But, but the truth that John says over and over and over, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that God has provided for us an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. We have hope. We have forgiveness for our sins. The blood of Jesus is poured out for us. So does a Christian continue to sin? I think the answer to that is yes, but he hates it. He hates it. He doesn't, doesn't do it over and over. He doesn't cherish it. He doesn't love it. He doesn't come back to it. He hates it. He fights it. He battles against it. He doesn't keep on practicing it. And he confesses it and looks to the righteousness of Christ as a covering for his sin. John goes on. 
then here in this, in chapter three, he, he talks about the first test was, was the moral test. Do we obey his commands? And the answer is those of us that believe we, we do obey his commands and, and his righteousness is in us. And then he comes back to that second test. Remember the social test, the idea of, of if you love me, you will love your neighbor. You will love others as yourself. That was Jesus's command. And John repeats it to, to the believers in first John chapter two. He says there's this social test of love. And so, John, I'm not going to read it all for you, but in, in verses 11 through 18 here in, in John chapter 3, he begins to give this second contrast. This, you remember, John's black and white, right or wrong. He says there's, there's really two ways that, that you can respond. If you are a believer, there's two things that you can have. You can have love or you can have hate for those around you. You can have love or you can have hate. And so what he does is he, he, he shows the two, the, the distinct differences between them. He says, hate, hate originates with the devil. And it indicates if you have hate in your life, that originates with the devil and indicates that you have an existence of a bond with him, with Satan, with the devil. If you have hate in your life, it expresses itself through jealousy. That's the the story. He gives the story of Cain and Abel and that Cain begins to to hate his brother and that hate and jealousy build up inside of him. And in the end, in the end, the jealousy and hate that build up inside of Cain ends in death. Not Cain's death. Well, it does end in Cain's death as well, but it ends in, in Cain murdering Abel. The very beginning, before the law even exists. Hate originates with the devil. It expresses itself in jealousy and it ends in murder, ends in death. And John on then says, love originates in God. We know love because he first loved us. It originates from him. And it shows a bond with the Father. Love expresses itself in self-sacrifice and it expresses itself in practical demonstrations of concern for those who are in need. That's the picture of the gospel. That God so loved us that he sent his only son, self-sacrifice, who would come then and give us a demonstration so that we might be saved. It's an example of Christ's work and action at the cross. And that ends doesn't end in death like hate does. It doesn't end in death like Cain and Abel did. Instead, that ends in life. Love originates with God and expresses itself in self-sacrifice and it ends in life. There's a stark contrast between hate and love. And what John is saying is that if you begin to see these things, if you begin to see hate and you begin to see all of, all of these other things, your bond is not with the one who knows love and shows love and we know love because he showed it to us. Your bond is not in love. Your bond is in hate. And if you're bonded to the devil, if you're bonded to the devil, you're not on the right side. But love comes from God and it flows through us and it flows out of us. And that love is then given, is then given to those around us, especially as he talks here, especially to brothers, especially to those that are, that are a part of believers of the believing church with us. Hate and love are the two contrasts. John then, I, I don't have time to go into it right now, but John then gives a kind of another little parenthetical there right at the end of chapter three. Um, to give, he gives a lesson on, on hope and on not doubting. He says that God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart. And, and God gives us the Holy Spirit to abide in us. That you're not on your own in this, but that God gives us the Holy Spirit to abide with us. 
Don't let your heart convict you. God's bigger than your heart, greater than your heart. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. And then he gives us this third contrast. So he gives us the first test is, do we obey his commands? And then talks through how what it looks like to obey his commands, that either you're with the devil or you're not. Then he, then he goes on to say that there's the second test of, do you love your, your brother as you should? That's the social test that John gives us in chapter 2. Which side are you on, love or hate? And then there's a third contrast, which he, he deals with right here in chapter 4, um, just for a little bit there at the beginning of chapter 4. And again, this is the doctrinal test. Do you, do you love and accept truth is what John is saying, and that's what he said in chapter 2. And right here at the beginning of chapter 4, he says there's a contrast again between, between truth and error. And I don't have time to read it, but, but he talks about there, there's, there's the Antichrist who does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God. And there's the believers that do know that Jesus did, in fact, he was the Son of God, and he did come in both flesh and was perfectly holy as God. The truth is what, what John is saying here is that Jesus makes all the difference. That's the over and over in this book. Jesus is the difference. John says Jesus is the difference. If you believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who was man and God, that's all the difference. Jesus, Jesus is the name that causes the divide. Caused the divide between the early church and the Gnostics and the heretics that were part of that group. And it still, it still is the place where we have division today. Too many people, too many people don't want to see the narrow way that Jesus talked about. Too many people want to talk about all the different paths that lead to heaven. Jesus is the one that causes division. It was in John's day and it is in our day. And yet John's response to that is there's a, there's a contrast between truth and error. And Jesus is on the right. Jesus is the truth. Jesus was God who became man and made a way for us. He became our advocate and our propitiation. And he says we have to know Christ. We have to rest there. We have to know that Jesus that Jesus came in the flesh. John reiterates all through this chapter those same three points. You can know. You can be assured. You can have, you can have assurance of your salvation as you begin to look through your life and you see these things bubbling up over and over. That you... Obey my commands because you love me and obey my commands is what God would say. And that you love your brother. You love the created ones, God's created ones. And then that you love the truth about Jesus. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God's incarnate son. Those are the three marks of believers. And John points to them over and over and over again. We can have hope today. There is hope for us today. Don't leave this morning discouraged. But leave this morning, the same place that John started us here in chapter 3. It says we're God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And we shall see him as he is. And the response to that is not let's wait it out. But let's purify ourselves. Let's purify ourselves. Let's chase after him. Let's obey his commands. Let's love our brothers. Let's love Jesus and believe in Jesus.
He is the only way. He's our advocate. He's our propitiation. Stand with me this morning. We're going to sing and declare that grace again. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless and I wonder? The King of glory. This is amazing grace. This is a fairing love that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. You lay down your life that I would be set free. I sing for all that you've done for me. Who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes the orphan a son and daughter? The King of glory, the King of glory. The nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance. The King of glory, the King above all kings. Yeah, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place. That you would bear my cross You laid down your life That I would be set free Oh, Jesus, I sing for All that you've done for me Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. That I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing. All that you've done for me Jesus I sing for All that you've done for me
my prayer this morning is that you will that you will encourage us. God, cause us not to be discouraged. Cause us to, to rejoice in the fact that you have made a way for us. That you did send your son, Jesus Christ the righteous, to be our advocate. Let us be encouraged by that. But God also, this morning, cause us, cause us to, to look, to evaluate, to dive into to, to our lives. God, let us, let us begin to look at those places where where sin continues to creep in. And God, let us, let us not love that. Let us not cherish that. Let us not have a habitual practice of that. But God, let us purify ourselves as we anticipate and wait for that day that you come so that we might see you face to face and we might be all that you've promised for us to be. So strengthen us today, God. Encourage us and call us. Work in us this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.